So this morning we're talking about the story that takes place in the Old Testament book of Esther. And um, as I was thinking about this, I was brought back to a story of in my own life that happened about nine years ago when I was playing soccer. We were living in England at the time, and I was playing uh, a soccer game with my friend. I hadn't played in about eight or nine months, and I was going to, to kick the ball, and I stepped with my right foot. I kicked as hard as I could with my left, the ball went through two defenders into the goal, and something went in my back. I felt this, this incredible searing pain. I collapsed to my knees, and you know, friends came around me, and I said, I, th I think I'll be all right. I'll, it'll loosen up in a little while. Well, uh, it turned out that I had, had ruptured two discs in my back, either then or that was the effect of having done so. Um, but it was, it was all a very stressful situation, and, and I have a, a slide here of, of uh, what happened the next morning. So my friend came to take me to the doctor, and as I was going to get in his car, my back went into this terrible spasm. I describe it like someone put a stick in my back and just started turning and turning. And I collapsed to the ground, and uh, I needed medical help, and the, the paramedics came. It was all very dramatic. Um, and Abby managed to get this picture of me at my finest moment. You can see me lying on the ground there with uh, nitrous oxide uh, on my face. Uh, Jeremy thought it was all very fascinating uh, to get to see paramedics in person and whatnot. Uh, so I had ruptured these two discs in my back. And it made me think, we're in this series right now on resilient faith in the Old Testament. We're looking at these different characters. And, and I looked up in Merriam-Webster's dictionary the, the definition of resilient. And resilient means capable of withstanding shock without permanent deformation or rupture or tending to recover from or adjust easily to misfortune or change. If you're like me, you're probably prone to rupture and lack that ability to, quote, recover from or adjust easily to misfortune and or change. And I don't think the faith, or the idea with resilient faith is just that we have a faith that bounces back quickly like a rubber band. You know, something that where hardship comes and, and we put on a happy face and say, you know, it's all good. We'll, we'll come fighting back from it. But on the other hand, we also don't want a faith that's brittle, that's easily broken. Um, the book of James talks about a kind of faith that's like the wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That's also not the kind of faith that we want. So not a faith that just bounces back immediately, but also not blown and tossed by the wind. So perhaps resiliency is about how we respond to those ruptures in our life and what we do to prevent them in the first place. You see, for me, when I kicked that ball, that wasn't, that wasn't the thing that broke, that hurt my back necessarily. It was more like the straw that finally broke my back, but the problems went back years before that. One of the problems of being an academic is that I sit too much, and I hadn't built up 
my, my core strength. And not developing that core strength then can lead to injuries later. I, I know one guy who, who said he, was, he ruptured a disc in his back because he was, he was turning the steering wheel going around a circle in England and he sneezed, right? And that, that blew out a disc in his back. Well, the problems probably went back years before that. So one of the questions is, how do we build the core strength in the first place so that the next crisis doesn't create that major rupture? So to that end, we're looking today at another story from the Old Testament. This one comes from the book of Esther. And Esther's an interesting book because throughout the story, God seems very absent. And I want to suggest today that Esther helps us see three things. First of all, God will sometimes seem silent or absent. Also, those times of silence and absence require core strength. And also, these times of silence and absence challenge us to see things differently, to reframe our experience in different terms. So before we get into those ideas, let me just give a quick sketch of the story of Esther so that we have that uh, in our minds as we move forward. So the book of Esther takes place during Israel's exile out of their land. We talked last week about the book of Daniel. So Daniel was one of the Israelites who was forcibly taken by the Babylonians from his homeland in Israel to Babylonia. And so Israel had been taken out of their land by the Babylonians, and then after the Babylonians, another kingdom came to power, and that was the Persians. The book of Esther is set during the, the Persian portion of Israel's exile, when some of the Jewish people had gone back to their land, but the majority were still living scattered among the nations. In fact, that second scripture reading we had this morning from Peter starts out with Peter addressing the exiles of the people of God. So it takes place in the um, time of the Persians during the reign of a king named Xerxes I. And it's set in the capital city of Susa. You don't need to know all those names and details, uh, but just remember it's in a, in a foreign land, and it's a story about some of the exiles who rose to power within the Persian court, within the Persian kingdom. So uh, the, the, bo the book begins with the story of the Persian king's uh, queen, uh, who had displeased the king, and so he deposed her from being queen, and he went on the hunt for a new queen to take her place. And Esther is the person who ends up being chosen through this beauty contest to become the next queen. And so the story really centers on the person of Esther and her, uh, her cousin who adopted her as his daughter. Uh, because her parents had died, she was much younger, and so her cousin became like a surrogate father to her, and his name was Mordecai. So Mordecai, he's among the Jewish exiles, he's Esther's older cousin, and he looks after her. And then we also hear about this, the main antagonist in the story, is this guy named Haman. 
and Haman is also part of the Persian court. He's powerful. He has a lot of influence over the, the king, and he convinces the king eventually to issue a law, an edict, that all the Jewish people in the empire should be killed. Now, there you had Mordecai and Esther in the court who were Jewish, but secretly so. And so the, part of the tension in the story is about living in the middle of this empire that had this law out that was uh, extremely hostile to all the Jewish people. Um, and eventually in the story, uh, Haman, he had convinced the king to make this law and hatched this plan to destroy the Jews, but his plan was ultimately foiled. Uh, through a number of interventions in the story, Esther eventually boldly goes before the king and says, hey, this guy Haman has made this law against my own people. And so a lot of the story is building up to that courageous moment where she goes before the king and pleads on behalf of her people. So that's this, the quick sketch, and we'll fill in some details as we go on. But I want to talk about what Esther might have to say to us about developing resilient faith. In some ways, this is a really strange book to ask that question with. Because Esther never once mentions God. God's name does not come up. You can look through the whole book in vain. There's no prayer. There's no worship in the book. So what does it mean to have a book in our Bibles that doesn't even talk about God? It almost seems like the book studiously avoids talking about God. One writer puts it this way. To say that divine absence in this book is unusual would be an understatement. Almost all ancient literature is permeated with religious language. The lack of religious references in the book of Esther is highly remarkable and almost certainly intentional. It's not that uncommon nowadays to write a novel and not talk about God. That's, that wouldn't be strange. But for ancient people, that was very strange because they had a, a very developed idea that the gods were always at work in the world. And Israel's own uh, literature attests to that same idea that God is always at work, whether behind the scenes or in the foreground. So why has God chosen to give us this story where God's not even present? It's not a very churchy book, is it? It doesn't keep raising its hand to say, the answer is G-O-D, right? The correct answer. Yet God did give this book to us to build our faith, and I think to build up the church. So it's important to think about this book where God isn't all over the pages. What does it mean to relate to a God who is sometimes absent or silent from our stories? I can remember as my, my back issues progressed, um, eventually I had to have surgery uh, to, to correct what had gone wrong in my back. That came about a year later. And after I had surgery, I was, I was slowly improving, 
And then I remember it reached a point where my back suddenly started getting worse again. And I went to the doctor and had another MRI. And I remember this meeting with uh, the, the spine surgeon. And he said to me, well, it looks like your, uh, your discs re-ruptured. And, and there had been a, he did say going into the surgery, there's about a 10% chance that that could happen. And I kind of figured, well, it's unlikely I'll be in the 10%. Well, it turns out I was. And I was so frustrated after that. I can remember going home and, and crying uh, with, with Abby about that. And I also remember becoming frustrated with the prayers of other people as well. I remember thinking, I'm kind of tired of all the prayer because I had gotten so much prayer for healing for my back. And I remember thinking too, like maybe sometimes when we pray and someone's healed, it's, it's just a coincidence. Maybe it's, it's just statistically speaking, some people do get better and that's all that happens. And it wasn't that I necessarily denied that God exists. It was more about the extent to which God actually intervenes or would intervene in this instance in my life. And I wonder if some of you are facing a very similar situation in your life. Maybe you have the sort of general generic belief that God does act in the world, but you wonder, will God act in my specific circumstance? God doesn't seem very present in my life. And maybe you've been through a lot of prayer and fasting and uh, pursuing God, but it just continues to be the case that God seems absent. And it feels like a kind of death. It can feel cold and numb. And this is where I think perhaps a book like Esther is exactly what we need. Because so often, our lives are not marked by the booming voice of God coming from heaven. And not even the quiet whisper alongside us throughout our day. So this brings us to the second point about resilient faith, which is those times of silence and absence require core strength. This can happen in several ways. It, sometimes it, it means tapping into practices that we've developed over the years. Jade talked last week about the idea of muscle memory. Remember, uh, if athletes sort of perform an action time and time again in the moment, they can respond without thinking because it's automatic. Uh, he ta- told the story of a woman who was willing to Uh, act bravely because she had developed that core strength over the years and when the moment came she was able to act bravely. Daniel, the character of Daniel that we talked about last week, had a core discipline of prayer three times a day so when trials came and challenges came he was able to continue in that through this tremendous threat to his life. In this story of Esther, faced with the threat against her people, um, we're told about her cousin Mordecai, who hears about this plot to destroy the Jews. And it says in chapter 4, verse 1, 
that he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and went into the city wailing loudly and bitterly. He even went right up to the king's gate, sat himself down in an act of protest against the policy of the king. Fasting is something that in ancient Israel was tied up with protest. So if you, it wasn't inherently a spiritual practice all the time, and in this case it was in a secular context, you could say. Um, but it was a way of saying with your body, I'm in distress, or my people are in distress. So if you think about it, one way to express distress is verbally, to cry out, and also you can do it visually. And that's what it means to wear sackcloth and put ashes on your head and to engage in these sorts of dramatic displays is to say there's a problem here. So that might not sound necessarily super spiritual to protest before the king. As I mentioned, Mordecai doesn't pray in the story to God, and this fasting is not necessarily before God. Um, but on the, same, on the other hand, I think Mordecai was tapping into a core discipline that he had developed over the years as a God-fearing Jewish man. Because we see throughout the Old Testament that God himself welcomes protest at his throne. He invites it even. There was a, a story that I, I love about um, Abby's sister a number of years ago where her kids, when they were young, uh, were complaining because they didn't get enough dessert. And, and this is an is uh, issue that's come up a number of times in our house um, that we're too stingy with desserts. Uh, you know, our kids only get like two sweeties a day and they should have three or four or five. Uh, or they get sweet foods sometimes, but not enough sweet drinks. You know, there's always uh, that issue. So Taya, Abby's sister, her kids were complaining about not getting enough dessert. And so she said to them, instead of just saying, quit complaining or stop or you've had enough, she said, you're not doing this right. You need to hold a protest. And she said to them, you need to make signs and march in protest against what's happening, this injustice. And so the kids went off and they, they made signs and they, they marched in protest against this policy of not enough dessert. So they wanted more dessert. And I think that's a bit of an illustration of the way God acts with his people throughout scripture over much more serious matters, to be sure. But God invites us to come before his throne and appeal to him boldly. We see this practice even in the life of Jesus, who from the cross cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me in the moment of his distress? You see, Jesus was quoting there from the Psalms in the Old Testament that he had prayed over and over and over again. It was part of his core discipline. He was immersed in scripture. And in that moment, he draws from this protest psalm and cries it out before God. 
And why would God invite this? Well, I think part of it is that God wants an authentic two-way relationship with us. You see, Mordecai had learned the Psalms where God's people pray bold prayers. Prayers like Psalm 13 that we read from this morning. Look on me and answer, Lord my God. Give light to my eyes or I will sleep the sleep in death. And my enemy will say, I have overcome him and my foes will rejoice when I fall. Or Psalm 43, you are God my stronghold. Why have you rejected me? Why am I set go about mourning, oppressed by the enemy? And from Lamentations, which ends, Restore us to yourself, Lord, that we may return. Renew our days of old, unless you have utterly rejected us and have forgot, and, uh, are angry with us beyond measure. The habit of bold prayer before the divine king gave Mordecai the courage to make bold appeals before the human king. Have you ever prayed boldly to God? I think it's a good discipline. Scripture commends it. And I often feel like in my life, I tap into about, you know, if, if the breadth of the kinds of prayers we have in Scripture is this wide, I feel like my prayers often operate in such a narrow bandwidth. And the Psalms are continually pushing me to expand my sense of what is welcomed in prayer before the divine throne. Have you ever protested before God? The bold faith of Mordecai eventually rubs off on Esther as well. And over the next several chapters, Esther, who was initially reticent and, and, and nervous about going before the king, uh, eventually works up the courage to do so. And that was not an easy thing. Because we read in chapter 4, verse 11, that all the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces knew that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law, they must be put to death. Unless the king ex extends the gold scepter to them and spares their life. Nice guy, huh? So Esther had to work up the courage to go before this king. But what if we lack that courage? What if our faith is weak right now? Do we have no hope because we haven't built up the strength over the years? Well, I take comfort from two details in this story. First of all, Esther had to learn courage. It, just, it didn't just come automatically to her. In fact, it's not until her second time going before the king, that she actually makes her appeal on behalf of the Jewish people who were threatened. And also, we read in chapter 4, verse 16, that she's able to summon courage from all the people in the land. She says, let all the Jews who are in Susa, the capital, fast for me. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And sometimes when our faith is weak and when our courage is weak, it's okay to draw from others' courage and from the faith of other people to borrow their faith and borrow their courage. And this brings us to the third point 
that times of divine silence and absence challenge us to see differently, to look at our own experience in different terms, and to frame our situation with God in it. So resilient faith doesn't only protest God's absence, it also pursues the hidden presence of God in our circumstances and lives. For example, when Mordecai urges Esther to use her position as queen to seek the protection of the Jewish people, he says this in chapter 4, verse 14. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your father's family will perish. And who knows, but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Mordecai's words there, such a time as this, hint at something or someone bringing Esther to power to save the Jewish people. He's asking her to look at her situation with different eyes. Who knows, he says. I love that phrase because it's, a, it's like a, a working hypothesis. Let's consider this. Maybe something, someone is at work bringing you to this position. Let's look at this with the eyes of faith. There's another example. On, on the night when um, Haman was going to murder Mordecai and to have the Jewish people the night before, he was going to have them killed, it just so happened that King Xerxes couldn't sleep well that night. And it just so happened that he asked his courtiers to bring the royal documents and just read them before him. Perhaps he wanted to hear something boring and go to sleep. And it just so happened that in those documents was the story of a good deed that Mordecai had done on his behalf. And that eventually led to Mordecai's promotion and the downfall of Haman and his plot to destroy the Jewish people. And these are faint hints in the story. God's name isn't present. There isn't a miracle, a parting of the sea. It's just the timing of the king's sleeplessness and Mordecai's words about the timing of Esther's rise to power at the throne. God doesn't only speak with a megaphone. Sometimes it's just these faint hints. See, and I think that's important. If we only had stories like the Exodus, where God does part the waters and bring his people through, or perhaps the wilderness wanderings of Israel, where manna falls from heaven, or even the Gospels, where it seems like people are getting healed and, and um, lives are changed left, right, and center, then we'd look at our own lives sometimes and think, well, I guess... I'm not a person of faith. I guess God's not active in my life. Whereas Esther challenges us to see with the eyes of faith. And there's always going to be a possible alternative explanation for what happens in our lives. Someone could say, well, that person would have been healed anyway. Or God didn't show up in your life. That was just a coincidence. Or maybe there's no one really out there when you worship. You're just getting yourself whipped up, your emotions whipped up. But I think reading Esther where God is silent 
helps us develop that core strength needed to walk through times when God is silent. That's often going to be our experience as well. And I think that helped me look back on what I was going through and see, you know, God is a God who works through the dramatic and the ordinary. He sometimes just zap, heals someone. And it's amazing. Praise God for those circumstances. But sometimes God works through medical intervention, physical therapy, and just the long walk of time. God is a God of all things, not just those dramatic moments. So what, for you, are the practices, habits, disciplines that God might be inviting you to take up to develop that core strength in your life for those hard times? Or perhaps it's not about doing more. Maybe God is just asking you to look back over a time in your life, or maybe this time in your life, and discern the faint traces of God's hand upholding and walking beside you. Let's pray together. Lord, in the silences where our faith might otherwise wither, grow our faith, Lord. Where we're weak and need your strength to hold us, be near to us, even when we cannot sense you nearby. Surround us, Lord, with people whose faith we can lean on, who can stand beside us. And we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.